Hey everyone and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my lovely book-loving wife, as always, Liberty. We're a married couple with different hobbies and we try to drag each other into our interest by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. Today is a book episode after a very long sports episode, so here we go. Well, this one we're going to have news, we're going to have new releases for December, and you finished a book. So those are usually the three things that can uh, drag out an episode of the book episode. That's definitely not what I was hoping to hear, (laughs) considering I've been sleep deprived for the last week. (laughs) But here we go. We'll try to get through it at least as quickly as we got through the sport episode. We actually got through it faster than I expected, but it was still really long episode. Based on the amount of pages, I thought for sure it was going to be like twice as long as it was. Well, we'll see if we can also power through this. As far as the news in the book world goes this week, in a move that surprises no one, Trump's first post-presidency book will require very little reading and cost way too much money. I feel like this is a slight jab at at him, but deserved? Well, let me finish what I was going to say. Okay. His new picture book will cost $74.99 for the regular book and $229.99 for a signed copy. Our Journey Together will be published on December 7th by Winning Team Publishing, which is a company that was started by Donald Trump Jr. I'm not shocked. It is a coffee table book that will contain more than 300 images, some of which will include captions in Trump's distinctive all-caps handwriting. You mean rage tweet handwriting? Yes. And I just love that the publishing firm is called Winning Team, even though they they were the losing team most recently, so... Well, on top of that, who the hell publishes an even kind of political book on December 7th? Right. Not the best choice of day, that's for sure. I'm not saying you can't publish a book on December 7th, but why would you publish this book on a December 7th? Yeah. I would still try to just avoid that day, I feel like, as a whole. I mean, it's not quite as bad as September 11th, I guess, but... Uh, About the same. (laughs) Well, one's definitely way more recent. Well, on the memory, yes. So I feel like my comment was not a slight towards him necessarily. It's just exactly what you would expect coming from a Donald Trump book. A picture book could could not, should not cost $75. And there is very little reading. All you have are the captions for the photos. I'll have to tell all my very Republican friends to support the book. Go ahead, waste your money. <laughs> and then in something that is very fitting for the season and not at all fitting to the thing that I was just discussing... Children's author Samantha Baines has vowed to send struggling families a free copy of her book for Christmas. People on Twitter have sent her their address so that she can send them a pre-wrapped copy of one of her books for children to open on Christmas Day. Some of the books getting sent out are The Night the Moon Went Out and Harriet vs. the Galaxy. Both books feature a female protagonist who wears a hearing aid on their adventure. Baines has already inspired other authors who have pledged to do the same, and in an interview said, It's just Christmassy, isn't it? It's about spreading the Christmas cheer. I feel like this is like a a good publicity stunt for herself and her books, but at the same time, it's just an outright good thing to do, like to give away things for Christmas and like not charge people about it. Authors get so many copies of their books, like they just have stacks and stacks of their own books in their own house. Right. So why wouldn't you? I agree. It just makes sense to do good things if you have the ability to do them. So 
It's very sweet. Yeah. And then you might be excited about this. You liked one of this author's books in the past. Marie Lu's dystopian novel Legend is set to be adapted. Soul and LA-based Bound Entertainment will be assisting in the adaptation with Lindsay Sturman set as executive producer. The book is set in a futuristic world that used to be the Western United States and is now home to a nation at war called the Republic. 15-year-old Day lives on the streets as a wanted criminal, and 15-year-old June is a prodigy being groomed for the Republic's military. What will happen when their paths cross? The author is set to develop the series and is currently writing the pilot with the executive producer, Sturman. That sounds interesting. I feel like that's a book I would probably enjoy reading as well. But as a whole, like, it seems like it would be good basis for like a TV show. Yeah, I have read that book. Let me see if I can pull up on Goodreads real fast. The book came out in 2011. I read it in 2016 and I rated it two stars. I was going to say before you read that, and I was trying to get it out there, I'm hoping you don't give it a bad rating because now I don't know that I really want to read the thing. Well, it's also one of those things where at the time I had read so many dystopian novels that some things just don't hit the same as if I hadn't read all of that. I can understand and respect that. But I do think it would make a good TV show for sure. But the bigger news of the week is the upcoming book releases for the month of December. One of the ones I'm excited for is The Righteous by Renee Audier. This one is releasing on December 7th. It is a YA fantasy novel and book number three in the Beautiful series. In this one, it seems like we're going to get a different POV than in the first two books. But the synopsis on Goodreads says... Pippa Montrose is tired of losing everything she loves. When her best friend Celine disappears under mysterious circumstances, Pippa resolves to find her, even if the journey takes her into the dangerous world of the Fae, where she might find more than she bargained for in the charismatic Arjun Desai. And in the first two books, we're in Celine's perspective, so it sounds like we flipped it and now we're in her best friend's perspective. It's interesting. But the series is set in... Late 19th century New Orleans, so that's pretty cool, and it is vampire-based, but obviously there are more magical creatures, because it mentioned the fae in the synopsis. But I think the thing here that I'm struggling with with the series is that because it's in a historical setting, the author has to build up what it would have been like back then. And in order to do so, has to use a lot of descriptions for the way people dressed and how they acted and stuff like that. So There's always a risk of having not done homework well enough on that type of thing? or No, it's just it's too much like historical fiction. I, I don't like historical fiction. So I'm kind of on the line with this one. If this one is good, I'll keep reading and read the next one. If I don't like this next one, it's sort of like... Do I even want to read the fourth book or not? We'll see. Another third book in a series that is also coming out on December 7th is The Excalibur Curse by Kirsten White. It's a YA historical fantasy novel and book number three in the Camelot Rising series. This is the final book in the series. And in this one, Guinevere questions everything, friends and enemies, good and evil, and most of all, herself. 
This is a fantasy series that is set in the world of Camelot and reimagines the Arthurian legend. I know a lot of people really like this author, and a lot of people have gotten into this series, so people are excited for that one. I feel like that whole story plot with like King Arthur and Camelot, like as a whole, has been done a lot over the years. So like I feel like that's maybe why people connect with it easier, just because they kind of already have a basis of understanding of the world. Right, right. It should be easy, I guess. You know, as long as you don't butcher the basics, you'll probably just cruise right through with a good book like that. Yeah. And the last one on my list coming out on December 7th is A History of Wild Places by Shay Earnshaw. It's a YA mystery thriller novel with a fantasy twist, is what I said. Travis Wren has an unusual talent for locating missing people with only a single object from the person who has vanished. This time, the case takes him to a reclusive, possibly cultish community. Once he stumbles upon it, he disappears, just like the woman he's looking to find. But it seems like there's also an undertone of not being able to trust your own mind and that sort of thing based off the rest of the Goodreads synopsis. I didn't want to read the whole thing because with a lot of mystery and thriller synopsises, if you read past the first paragraph, it just gives everything away. Right. I don't know. It sounds good. I usually like stuff about cults, so I feel like I could enjoy this one. And I've read from Shay Earnshaw before and had a decent time. It wasn't like the next great American novel or anything, but it was a good time when I read that one. So I might get this one. And then one that I think you're looking forward to, I'm looking forward to. The dilemma I have right now is I have a lot of comics I need to read right now. So like I don't So you take a week off and only read comics. I, I might have to do that. Yeah. Well, the one we're talking about is The Old Guard Tales Through Time. This is volume one of this section of The Old Guard. And it's by Greg Rucka, Ayala Vita, Brian Michael Bendis, and just a whole list of other people. But those are the main ones. This one comes out on December 21st, and it's an adult comic graphic novel, whatever you want to call it. I think this is more of a comic well, when you're not doing the bind-up, it definitely leans more towards the comic side of things. Right. And it looks like in this set of comics, we get to see the different characters from the Old Guard throughout history, or, you know, through time. And it's a series that is about immortals whose work tends to change history throughout the world. And I feel like that's the best way to describe the series without, like, getting into it. Coming out on December 28th is It Happened One Midnight by... Serena DeWild. I hope that's how you say her name. I'm going to start having you look names up, whether it be sports or or book episodes. I'll get it wrong either way. It's fine. Yeah. This one is an adult romance novel, and it is, from what I read, a fake dating trope with best friends, novelist Juniper Blossom, and divorce attorney Tomas Rivera. She wants to get her meddling grandmothers off of her back, and he wants to make partner at his firm. She believes in true love. He thinks true love is a fairy tale. And maybe feelings start to develop while they're faking it. It's a romance novel. It better happen. Right. And the last one, and uh, also coming out on December 20th, is Evershore by Brandon Sanderson and Jancy Patterson. It is the third of the Skyward Flight novellas. And the series is a YA science fiction series, but this one seems to be Jorgen's novella. 
So he and Alonik must work together when they receive a transmission from the planet Evershore and its Kitson inhabitants. But I'm excited because I get to see more of the Kitson, the little fox gerbil guys. I know exactly why you're excited about that, and I also am a little bit excited about it. Is this taking place post-book three? or yes. Okay. I'm hoping that they continue to do like little novellas outside in the same world with some of the characters, because I feel mm-hmm. like that would be... A very easy way for them to continue to make money from this series without having to write whole other books because well, it wraps technically in the third book, right? Like the main no. plot line? No? How no. many books is it supposed to be? Seven? Holy crap. I want to say it's seven and then the three novellas, so technically ten works. But The third one just came out? On the 23rd, yeah. Okay, I was like, say, it came out this month, I know, but we have we received our copy of it yet? We're supposed to on Tuesday. That's exciting. So I need to read these freaking novellas is what I'm hearing. Yes, yeah. you really do. But basically, it's book number one and then book number two. And then I think what happened is the author needed a way to bridge where he took book three and where he ended book two. So he wrote the novellas and then there's another novella after the third book. So it's one, two, and then novella one, two, and then book three and then novella three. Funsies. And let me see. That definitely sounds it's saying It's saying four books in the series. That makes me feel a little bit better about not knowing. <laughs> but I thought I heard somewhere it's going to be a total of seven. So at least four. But December isn't really a month that has a ton of books coming out. It's usually only things that are parts of series because those already have an audience, if that makes any sense. Right. Because usually in December, you're so busy worrying about whatever holiday you celebrate that you don't tend to want to pick up new. Or you're like me and you just get worked to literal death and then you come home and just want to sleep. To literal death? Yeah. Literally. Felt like it the other day. Yeah, that's for sure. But as for what I've been reading for the past two weeks, I feel like I got a ton read in that first week. And then the actual week of Thanksgiving, I felt like I read nothing, which is fine. You know, real life happens. I was going to say, I I also kind of feel that way because like the week leading up to us taking the week off, I read a lot in like two or three days and then all of a sudden like just work. Yeah. Yeah. So. But I'll run through what I read real quick. I ended up finishing five things. Okay. The first is The Damned by Renee Audier. It's a 2020 release and a YA fantasy novel. It's book number two in the beautiful series. When I read this one originally, I rated it 3.75 stars. I think I stick by that rating, but for a different reason, if that makes sense. But following the events of book one, we see the consequences of Celine's actions as well as this new world she is thrust into where werewolves and vampires and all sorts of other supernatural creatures are at war and hiding in plain sight in late 19th century New Orleans. And then because I'm me, I read Lumberjanes. I read volume four, which is Out of Time by Noelle Stevenson and her artists and everything like that. This one is a 2016 release and a middle grade question mark comic series. I don't know. Because in our bookstore, they put it in with the children. I'm like, 
Some of these are scary things going on. Children should not be reading this. Like, not that young. I wouldn't quite say it's like YA, like 16 up. I would say maybe like 12 to 15, maybe. So like kind of kid? Middle grade. Yeah, yeah, like almost middle grade-ish. But this one I rated four stars and it seems like I'm rating all of these four stars. So I don't know what that says. It either says that you like the books. Maybe you're just not giving it quite as good of a score as you should be like you seem to enjoy all of them i really enjoy them but there's just not enough in all of them in my opinion i think they need more yeah but i'm also someone who doesn't like short fiction in general so i feel like four is a good rating for that yeah that's fair but for the synopsis i said the girls continue facing monsters at miss quinzella thisquin penny Quequel, thistle crumpets camp for hardcore lady types as well as more clues are dropped in relation to the woman who runs the camp and her past, which I actually really enjoyed that part of that one. It's always nice when you get a good plot and you can still learn some things about the backstories of other characters. Right, too. right. Like, like you're still you're still moving the plot forward, but you also see some of that history, which I enjoyed. Right, because you don't get that in a lot of comics, so it's kind of a good good thing. Yeah. And then I read the second novella in the Skyward Flight series, and it's Redawn by Brandon Sanderson. It is a new release from October, and it's a YA science fiction novella. And technically, it's called Book 2.2 in the Skyward series. I ended up rating it 3.75 stars. It wasn't as good as FM's novella, in my opinion, that first one you're supposed to read after you read Starsight. But in this one, it is set after the events of book two and following Alonic from the planet Redon. Once she is woken up and recovered from her injuries obtained when she crash landed on Spence's planet. And I really liked exploring the world that she comes from and like seeing how it differs from detritus and our understanding of our own planet and everything else. Because it is very like science fiction-y, the world that she lives on. So that was fun. Instead of, like, borderline science fiction slash broken down society? Detritus is so similar to Earth that, like, it it's a sci-fi, but, like, it feels like a lighter sci-fi. But with Redon, you definitely explore, like, other versions of how planets can be. Right. So that was fun. That's good. I also read Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And then I read Serendipity which is edited by Marissa Meyer and written by various authors. It was a NetGalley arc, and the book releases on January 4th of 2022. This one is a YA romance slash contemporary short story anthology. There were 10 stories by 10 different authors. And this one got an average rating of 3.5 stars for me, which almost feels too low because I had such a good time reading most of these stories. There was only one that I rated less than three stars. So I feel like for an anthology, 3.5 is actually a really good rating because you have so many different types of stories. So not all of those different types of stories are going to work for whoever's reading them. So it's hard for an anthology to get a high rating. I was going to say anthologies as a whole, like having all the different kind of touches and perspectives and feelings into them can definitely affect an individual person reading. So like I would say you nailed it on the head. The fact that you had that many that were that good is pretty good. Yeah. And something I really enjoyed about it is that it was diverse without feeling forced in not just ethnicity, but also there were plenty of LGBTQ plus stories 
throughout the whole thing. And so that was really nice. And there was even one story that had discussion on like class warfare. So like one part of the relationship was really, 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 really times 15 rich. Got it. And then the other person was just like a normal guy. Yeah. And so it was fun to see class explored in a romance novel or short story. But for the synopsis for this one, I said that it is an anthology of romance short stories featuring the tropes that we all love. One bed, fake dating, the grand romantic gesture, trapped in a confined space, the makeover, etc. Right. And I said, this book has it all. There are 10 stories from 10 well-known and loved authors, including Marissa Meyer, Anna Marie Mecklemore, Leah Johnson, Julie Murphy, and Sandia Minon. For what I plan on reading next, technically I've already finished this one, but we'll talk about it next week. We're just recording at a different time in the day, so I've already finished it. Right. It's The Mistletoe Trap by Cindy Madsen, and it's a 2020 release. Okay. It is an adult holiday romance novel, and it's technically the second book in a series, but they're companion novels, so you don't have to read one to read the other one. I can understand that. And the first one doesn't take place during Christmas, so I wasn't interested. Because I'm still me, no matter what. Through and through. Christmas all the way. But this was book number two in the Heart in the Game companion series. That's an interesting name for a series. Heart in the Game. Well, it's a romance series that features someone related to sports. So, like, the first one was about the owner of a team. The second one is about someone who plays on that team. So... So on and so forth. Right. In this one, best friends Gavin and Julie are excited to spend the Christmas season back at home with both of their families, but their parents have wanted them to get together since they were children, and the adults in their lives attempt to pull a reverse parent trap, and it might just work? Question mark. It's a romance, so you would think it would work. I was going to say, as a whole, usually speaking, whatever random attempt they're making at the romance always is going to work in a romance book, usually speaking. Like, why would you write a romance book and then be like, and they killed each other at the I end. feel like they don't always end in a happily ever after. Like, you expect it to because it's a romance, but I'm sure there's a genre of romance that, like, you just, you get your heart broken and then that's the end of the book. So you'd call it till death do us part romance and then they just all end up dying at the end or, like, everything goes to heck this makes me think of The Red Wedding, but I feel like I don't know enough about that <laughs> show speak to it. speak about it. Got it. Because I finished that early, I have to sneak in a short little book or novella or something before the other reads I actually want to read this week. Because the two things I want to read this week are not here yet, and they're supposed to be here on Tuesday, so we'll see we've had a lot of lost mail over the past year so books going to guam you know things like that no big deal i feel like that's just a lie so people can steal books i'm just hoping your book got a little bit of beach time before it got shipped back to us maybe the pages are a little more tan yeah yeah but the two things that i originally really wanted to read this week and i hope i can are extraordinary by V.E. Schwab. That's a new release from October, and technically it's a YA fantasy graphic novella, graphic novel. It's book number 1.5 in the Villains series. In this one, three new extraordinaries must grapple with their new abilities while dealing with someone attempting to hunt them down. Someone? Come on. I mean, you don't know, because I haven't read it yet, but I assume I know. 
I was gonna say because I've read the villains duology, so it is one point five for a reason, and not two point five. Yeah, right. We'll see. We'll see. But that I'm very excited for that one. It's been pushed back so many times. So if it's not in my mailbox this week, I will lose my mind. You won't lose your mind. You'll just wait patiently because what else are you going to do? Go to the post office and go, where is my book? I can pull a Karen. No, you can't. You beat yourself up too much mentally to do it. I know better. I'll get a haircut and then pull a Karen. Or you'll send me to go do it. What's the male version of a Karen? I don't know. I want to say what popped into my head, but you're going to get mad. You were going to say a Steven, weren't (laughs) you? It's not what it is. And then the other book that I hope will be in my mailbox this week that I can get to this week is Cytonic by Brandon Sanderson. I said I'll probably start it, probably won't finish it. It kind of depends on when it shows up. It's a new release from last week on the 23rd. It is a YA science fiction novel and book number three in the series. In this one, I'm going to try to be as concise as I can, not go too in-depth with this one because you're not caught up to where I am in the series. Well, I have to read the novellas, so you're right, yeah. But in this one, I said that in order to save her planet in the galaxy-wide war with the superiority, Spencer must travel into the nowhere to learn more about herself and her powers. But the nowhere is a place from which few ever return. To have courage means facing fear, and this mission is terrifying. Dun, dun, dun. Bum, bum, bum. I'm excited to get to this book, but I know I have a lot to read to get there, so... I think about 400 pages. Yeah. Across two novellas, so it's not bad. I would agree. But yeah, this week is kind of really up in the air. Maybe literally, because maybe that's how my books get here. But if those don't show up, I'm going to have to sort of figure out what I'm going to read. Yeah. For the week. Like, I have a list of what I want to read next month, but I kind of had it slated in to read those two things this week, so I'd have to adjust. I'm kind of hoping your books come via horseback instead of via the air. That would be cute. Yeah. As long as he doesn't chew on my books. Well, I would imagine that the books would be in the carriage that is being pulled by the horse, but... Or would it be, like, on a leather, like, bag, side saddle, like, being held, and then... I figured it'd be attached to the horse. What, his face? No, in, no, in a bag. On it wasn't like holding it with its mouth, like, hey, here, but. <laughs> um, but I am going to have to slide in a Christmas carol between now and when the books arrive because I don't ever not read, so. Fun. Well, it's illustrated, so I don't feel like it's going to be as bad as all of that. But while we were gone, you ended up finishing Starsight. Very quickly because I was ready to read it. And I think when I say that a lot of times on the podcast, you guys think that I just don't actually go and immediately read the thing. But like the day you were editing, I read about half of what I needed to read for the week. Right, right. So you were very excited for the end of this book, which it's an exciting end of a book. So I understand. It is. They're definitely like, I want to say it could have been a little better, but I don't know how I would have changed it to make it better because it was, was still gonna a, ask because it's still a really good ending. It just. I don't know. It seemed like everything that was kind of happening was what I started piecing together. But I think at the end of part three, you kind of are given enough information to start understanding what's going on. Maybe. But again, I read this almost two weeks ago and my brain is very ADD. So it retains this much information. He basically held his fingers together. Yes. Um, Especially with the week that I have at work that usually drains my brain of pretty much everything memory-wise. So this might be a very interesting wrap-up of talking about the book. And short. Yes. 
where you started your reading for that week was that Jorgen, we had this little interlude with him, and he was basically training with Spencer's grandmother. Yeah. Making bread. And I thought that little domestic scene was really cute because, like, he's not just learning how to make bread. He's learning about his cytonic abilities. And he has no idea that that's what's happening until all of a sudden it's like, oh. Right. This is what she's teaching me and why she's teaching me the thing. And towards the end of that scene, he is realizing that he can hear something, but it's not the stars that are above him. He can hear something below him. Yeah. Which is a little weird, considering the basis of this whole story is to hear things in space so far. But it makes sense that you could hear other planets. So, like, if anything, he would be able to cytonically help you move things amongst the Earth, I guess? I don't know. It's kind of a... I'm waiting to see what continues from this. I I can't tell you anything. I I realize this. I'm not asking you to. I don't know how to keep a straight face is my problem. (laughs) Because, like, I know the answer to all the things. And, and you know, if I pry, I can read body language very well because it's literally my job to do so sometimes. So In this last section, we see Spencer taking her new built, would you call it a drone? Her little spy drone onto the weights and measures the so thing, that she can figure out what's going on in the engine room. The drone made out of a robot vacuum, basically. Let's call it what it is. Now I'm just picturing a Roomba floating around, and that's kind of obvious. That's legit the first thing that came to my mind when they, <laughs> they said what they had made. In my of. head, I picture like a square box that's got stuff on the outside. So like two dustpans put together and then like just things dangling off of it. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> but I believe she just... Goes into the bathroom and then tells it to do its thing and goes back into the jump room with her team. Then she spends the rest of the day training with everyone. Yep. I feel like the middle of the book had a lot of training involved in it, but like it was important because you saw relationships being built. Right. It needed to exist, but man, there were times where it was like, this is here for this and only this. I feel like the training sequences were just there to give you an opportunity to do all of this other stuff with a plot. And that the training sequences aren't even like a red herring. It's just like... There. You use them to move to these different aspects of the story. Right. And with this one, she is learning more about Braid and like trying to develop a relationship with her and also learning about the Delvers and how they work. Yeah. And we sort of see the inside of the maze. I can't remember if you saw them before or if this was the first time when she goes in and explores with Braid. So she goes in and explores originally with, um, gosh, what's the character's name? It's drawing a blank on my head right now. Hesho. No. Moriamur. No. Vapor. Yes. So she has already explored it once with Vapor and not gotten to like the end necessarily. So that's the first time you see her and Braid get to what is deemed like the room, more or less. Yeah, it's the center or the heart or whatever you want to call it of the Delver. Correct. That's when basically she learns about the weapon that Braid uses and that they have. It's like a cytonic transportation flashy machine. (laughs) Well, I believe it specifies that the way the weapon works is that it sends a signal into the heart of the Delver of, like, 
this is where you should be. Like, this is the location you should be at. Yeah. And is basically meant to send the Delver somewhere else. Other than where it actively is hanging out and causing chaos. Though, if it jumps while you're inside it, do you also jump with it? I would imagine you would. And then, like, what does that do to you? Right. So that'd be weird. Agreed. But also, in that moment where she's testing the weapon on this little faux Delver that they have, all of a sudden, Spencer knows the way to get home. It's projected into her head because she's in the room with the weapon. Right. And she's cytonic, so that helps. And this is kind of where I kind of connected the dots to what goes on a little bit because, like, the weapon was clearly pre-programmed to send something somewhere. And that's why I thought all of a sudden, like, that's why she could just immediately go, I got it. Because it was sending the signal as to where to go in communication via cytonic Well, it was, it was to send it to detritus. Like, oh, yeah, That was what was impressed upon the faux Delver thing and right. upon Spencer. No matter what, the weapon's programmed to take you to detritus so that you can destroy detritus. Which I don't think she connected the dots to at that point. But yeah, as a reader, I was like, that's a thing that's going to happen. To me, that felt obvious, but... Well, that's what I'm saying to me as well. But again, I don't think she connected the dots to it. But when they made it back into their own individual ships... She does specify, don't you care at all that they're planning to use this to destroy an entire planet of humans, your people. Right. So I feel like Spencer got it. Yeah. And then when they get out of the maze, they're sent a communication that they need to finish training early and make it back to the weights and measures so they can meet up with Winsick and a slew of people who are in the ballroom. Right. A little weird you have a ballroom on your ship, but whatever. Well, they do rule kind of the entire universe as a whole. So, like, is it that weird for them to be, like, fancy? But she basically has to schmooze with, like, the upper people of the superiority. Right. And Braid kind of goes off at that little schmoozing shindig where they're celebrating the weapon working. And Spencer follows after her, and Adion takes them to their transportation section and they're fighting about what it is to be human. And Braid is basically brainwashed into thinking because she's a human, she's like a monster and a killer and all this other stuff. Right. And basically, Spence is trying to recruit Braid, but also Braid's been trying to recruit her the whole time for this mission with the thing. And so they're kind of using each other. Yeah. Or trying to, at they're, least. They're playing both sides, each of them. And they're about to hyperdrive faster than light travel to Starsight again from their training area that they're in. And so Spencer tries to reach out with her cytonic abilities to mess up whatever it is that makes that happen, the hyperdrive. And so... That's where her drone can see what's going on. Can see what it is that's being put in place, what the hyperdrive looks like and that sort of thing. And the drone ends up accidentally setting off some sort of alarm when she's leaving the, or when the drone is leaving the engineering room, the engine room. Right. And so basically Spencer gives it the order to take out the weapon and start shooting things, which is a whole chaotic mess. It's kind of the distraction that was needed though. Like looking back at it, like if it didn't happen, boy, would she have been in trouble and probably found out. Right, right. 
And so Spencer ends up finding a way to get to the engine room area, like right outside of it, and shoots down the drone. And in doing so, basically, like, destroys any evidence that she was involved with that situation. Right. But she did have some sort of way to watch the video, right? I think she, it was probably uploaded to her band, I would imagine. Possibly. Like, if I remember correctly, albeit it's been a minute since I read that section, but I'm pretty sure that information was just wirelessly transmitted. And then she shot it to kind of sell it. Like, look at what I did. I clearly am right here, you know, supporting you guys. Yeah. But while she's doing that, she's taking note of the situation, the sounds, the sights, the smells, everything going on. And then when she's being escorted to the shuttle that will take her to the embassy, Vapor comes up beside her and says, you need to come with me. Yeah. And that's when she realized the smell that she smelled outside the engine room was Vapor. And Vapor saw everything. And she's taken into a shuttle with Kuna. And she's like, well, crap. Yeah, like, I'm super screwed now. I've ruined everything. But Kuna doesn't know that she's a human they think that it's basically Alonic spying for her people. And at the end of this chapter, she is stuck in that shuttle watching all of that with Kuna and Vapor. And that's when she sees that they're bringing in a bright yellow slug with blue spines yeah. right before they hyper jump, which reminds her of a different slug with blue spines. Like a doom slug. Yes. Which... Explains a lot about what the data net has to say about them and, like, why they're so... Dangerous? Yeah. They're poisonous. They're the worst. They'll kill everything. Tell the government that you found one. Yeah. Not sketchy at all. But then we find out that Vapor already knew about her slug because of following Moriumer to her place and seeing them interacting together. But basically... Kuna expresses that she's trying to work against Winzik and saying that he's not as necessary and that sort of thing. He's making a power reach as well. Yeah. And Kuna's trying to prevent that. Correct. Which makes sense. At the end of this meeting where they've both divulged a decent amount of information, Spencer feels like she's able to end her hologram and show who she really is to Kuna and Vapor. And they're both like, what is happening? And lose their minds a little bit. Understandably so. Kind of a surprise I don't think anybody would expect. After she ends up showing herself and they discuss all the politics related to detritus and Winsick and her position in the superiority, they realize that Vapor and Elonic or Spence's flight has been mobilized because they believe that a Delver has been spotted. Dun dun dun. When Spencer and Vapor get back to the weights and measures, they run into other people, specifically Hesho and Winzik, and they're talking about how everyone's probably frightened and confused about what happened today, but it appears that based off of the things that they found in the hallway outside the engine room, the weapon was of human origin, and so Winzik is using this as proof that the human threat is much worse than anyone expected. And that he and his people are necessary in order to fight the human scourge. And Hesho is, like, fired up. Like, let's go kill some humans. And there's a short conversation between Braid and Spencer about 
what to do because Braid's a human and Spencer is trying to give her advice and Braid's saying, you don't know what this feels like. And Spencer's like, actually, I do know what this feels like. And boy, was that the biggest mistake she ever made. Yes, it really was. She showed her true self to Braid and then Braid like just was like... Immediately, I found her. Human, human, spy, human. Like, good job. And obviously she didn't have time to go back and get... Mbot. Mbot. So yeah. she hopped in her provided government fighter. Yes. And cytonically traveled back to detritus to and, warn everybody. And left Mbot at the embassy. Yeah. In Starsight. That was hard for me to read the first time I read it. Because I'm like, he's your best friend. But she would have been dead if she would have gone back for him. Like, no ifs, ands, or buts. And so would detritus, let's be honest. Right. She ends up landing on Platform Prime, and she basically has to do a really quick... Like quick debrief? With Cobb. Like, really quick debrief. Yes. And basically forces him to get everyone in the air to fight. Because the weights and measures and all 50 of the aces, basically, or piloted ships, are there. And Spence is trying to argue that these people aren't bad people and they're not all bloodthirsty trying to kill all the humans. That they're just doing what they're told to do and they should give some leniency. And Cobb was like, well, everyone's got family and everyone's got people they they love. Like, who do you think you've been fighting all these like, years? War is war because everybody's fighting for the ones they love no matter what. Like, that's just the way that works. And it's just like, how did you not understand that before? But it kind of, like, makes sense, I guess, to an extent. Like, But it also looks like, besides them, they were going to try to pull through a Delver in order to have the Delver destroy the humans. And then Winzik can use all of his power to move up politically in the superiority. Yeah, because, like, look at what I did with the Delver. I was able to defeat it. And Him having that weapon means he can basically use the Delver any way he wants to attack any planet he wants and get away with it. Right, which is horribly the wrong idea, as we learned. <laughs> Spencer ends up trying to talk to her old flight and get them on her side. I think the scene with Hesho was the one that got me the most, like, emotionally, because she was literally knows that Hesha wanted to be the one to kill the first human. And she was like, do it. I'm right here. Yeah. And, like, they built such a bond. And it was more along the lines of, like, I was who I was, but I was camouflaged. And, like, I think you're great people. And, like, just played it off. And they took a vote because they're newly democratic. Right, right. And uh, it worked out in her favor that he was, A, attached to her a little bit. And so was the rest of his crew. So... They're so cute. I'm so excited they get their own umbrella. Yeah. But also at the same time, Braid is summoning the Delver that we are expecting to show up. But they end up working together to try to not kill Braid, but stop her from summoning the Delver. At one point, though, they literally do say, like, we're going to have to kill her because, like... Well, they realize after talking to Braid that she's not going to stop and yeah. that they're going to have to. They, they don't, don't want choice. to at first, but they have no choice. Because she's clearly going to keep driving along that issue, so, yeah. yeah. But Braid eventually does bring in a Delver from the nowhere. And so this is where their training comes into effect. The combat training. Thank goodness that she was willing to take all that time to teach him how to fly. Because, boy, it could have been a lot worse very quick. Yes. 
as we know, Braid is like the ace of aces. So Spenta ends up forcing the Delver to go to Starsight instead. But they've already sustained severe casualties. Lord Hesho is dead. And in his place, there's a Kitson named Kari who is captaining their ship. And when Spenza explains what happened, the Kitson are really scared because they have family at the station at Starsight. Right. And they realize that they're going to have to sit it out. Like they don't really have the ability to be in the fight once they cytonically transport back there. So, like, you see the Kitson, I believe, separate off in order to go and save their people, basically. Well, the Kitsons, I believe, had ship trouble. Yeah, all sorts of damage. So they weren't going to be able to make it all the way to Starsight, and they probably weren't even going to make it all the way to the weights and measures before they went back to take care of the Delver. Right. But Spensa gets them to put all of their ship's wings touching her so that she can fling them through the nowhere to Starsight. Right. And then the battle begins, right? No, there's still more. Then we see Morimer's stuff go on. We do get a little interlude after that of what's going to happen to Morimer and how they're going to basically not exist anymore. But then Morimer finds out about the Delver right when that's about to happen and decides to Cancel that process, yeah. Kuna, at the time, thinks that Winzik's already destroyed Detritus and is coming with the Delver to attack Starsight. Right. Or at least to show his military power. Which wouldn't be all that shocking, let's be honest. Right. And Braid's trying to work to send it again to Detritus, but Spencer is trying to send the Delver somewhere else, just else, somewhere not here. But she feels the thoughts pressing down on her from the Delver of like humans are all buzzing insects and nothing and they're just annoyances that the Delver has to deal with. She ends up flying with Mariamur, I believe all the way into the heart of the Delver. Am I remembering correctly? Yes. And because Mariamur is technically two people, they never needed someone else to fly with them through the maze because they could always tell what was real and what was fake. Yeah, because they both were seeing two separate things. I was like, that was smart. Mortimer is two people. You don't need two people. You are two people. Right. And basically, Spencer is pleading with the Delver to go somewhere else. And that all these people aren't as bad of, like, as they come across and how much of an annoyance they come across. It's just more of, like, just leave them alone, go away type of spiel. Well, and, like, just telling it to just see them, see the all the beings as beings and that they're alive and they are similar to what a Delver is. Like, you all have your own emotions and that sort of thing. And it's no different here than it is with you type of a speech. And then we get the epilogue, which is Jorgen going deeper into the caves yeah. and him hearing whatever that is, because it's not stars above him. It's something below him. And he ends up going into a cave and diving into this area that's hard to access. And he comes out the other side and it's a bunch of slugs. I was going to say, it's kind of like an underground river grotto grotto type thing. Yeah. He sees literally hundreds of slugs. Right. And Spencer wakes up in a hospital room on Starsight, I believe. 
And someone has come to try to attack her and Kuna. It's basically the military force. Of under Wiznik. Wiznik's control. Mm-hmm. And Spencer manages to escape and runs into Braid. Who ends up saving her in a last attempt to kind of like persuade her to join them, which was super weird. Well, and Braid sets off a weapon from the ground that destroys a shuttle, I believe. Right. And basically it gets blamed on Spencer. Correct. Despite the fact that she did not do it. Yeah, more war propaganda, basically. Yes. Oh, and she's also trying to figure out what happened to Imbot. Yeah, which she does end up eventually figuring out. And it turned out that a lot of his parts were destroyed and broken. Because they were always believers that AI is like the evil of above all evils, basically. Well, it's what's going to cause the Delvers to come down and kill everyone. Right. But it turns out that Imbot was able to copy himself into something smaller that she could carry out of there and get away. Right. And Imbot's specifying that he's not as strong in, like, this sort of, like, smaller version. And Spence is talking about finding a way to fix him. Imbot shows her all of the political stuff happening with Winsick and talking about how all the humans are way worse than expected and you need us and you need the military. And she ends up finding herself in the place where they have the portal where they pull that acclivity stones out of the nowhere. Yeah, it's the nowhere portal. Yeah. Which is pretty mysterious to you as a reader up until this point. Like, you understand that it's used for a thing, but, like, you don't really grasp it 110% as to what it is. Right, and basically... Spencer takes Imbot in one hand, Doomslug in the other, and goes through the portal. To where we don't know. Well, at least into the nowhere. And then she has to figure out how to get out and somewhere safe. Right. For her and Imbot and Doomslug. And I assume that's where we'll continue in the third book. Yes. And the two novellas that you're going to read are ones that take place... During book two? At the end of book two is where the first one starts okay and then it goes from there and then alonix starts basically the middle of fm's novella okay and And goes goes. from there and then the third book will probably start where the second book left off or after novella after the novella gotcha but i'll be reading the first novella this week which is exciting it's about 190 pages or so so it's going to be a lot of reading for me, but the good news is this week is not as hectic as the last two weeks have been. So yeah, that'll be nice. It's a saving grace. In the meantime, make sure you're staying connected with us on all of our social media. All the links will be in the show notes. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe like all the other podcasters tell you to do. And we'll see you next Tuesday for the sports episode. Bye, guys. Bye.